Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. Thank you also to Care Align for sponsoring this episode. Have you been looking for a better way to manage your tasks and collaborate with colleagues? Check out Care Align, a HIPAA-compliant digital workspace built to make the electronic health record work better for clinicians. Manage your tasks, build dynamic care plans, and generate your progress note in a single platform. Visit www.caroline.ai backslash explore to learn more. So National Hospitalist Day took place on March 4th of this year, and to mark that occasion, I was really proud to collaborate with the Society of Hospital Medicine to put on our first Explore the Space Show Society of Hospital Medicine Roundtable. This event was titled The Pluripotent Hospitalist, and it was just extraordinary. It was originally aired on March 4th. We did it live on YouTube. We had an amazing audience. We had incredible panelists, and it was just a really special conversation. It was my absolute honor to be able to moderate this discussion and to be a part of this conversation with Dr. Malin Martinez, Dr. Ndidi Unaka, Dr. Anika Kumar, and Dr. Gurpreet Dhaliwal. I think you're going to really enjoy listening to this, discussing this idea of the pluripotent hospitals, looking at it through the context of where we are now in 2021, in the midst of the pandemic, things like mental health and how we recruit and how we build this incredible specialty of hospital medicine. It was just a really special, really dynamic and really unique opportunity. It was just a real treat to be a part of it. Definitely a thank you to everyone at the Society of Hospital Medicine who helped to make this possible. Dr. Eric Howell, who is the CEO of Society of Hospital Medicine, Dr. Samir Shah, who's the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Hospital Medicine and is a great collaborator and friend of Explore the Space podcast, and most of all to Brett Radler and Caitlin Cowan, who were the energy behind the scenes. They drove the ship, and they did a remarkable job with the creation, the marketing, the production, all of it. So thank you to all of them. We will get to the roundtable in just a moment. Just want to remind everyone, please do subscribe to Explore the Space podcast wherever you like to download your shows. We're on every platform. Please give us that rating and review as well. It really helps the show out and definitely share with your friends and colleagues. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. Definitely check out the archive of Explore the Space Show. We're getting close to 250 episodes in the archive, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can find me on Twitter at ETS show as well. This was the first roundtable conversation that we've done to mark National Hospitalist Day. I hope we get to do many more because if they're anything like this, they're going to be amazing. This was a real treat. You're really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, the pluripotent hospitalist. 
Delighted you could all be here. Thank you so much for making some time to join us. And welcome to the Society of Hospital Medicine and Explore the Space podcast roundtable on the pluripotent hospitalist. I'm Mark Shapiro. I will be moderating today. I'm a full-time clinical hospitalist in Santa Rosa, California, and I'm the host and producer of Explore the Space podcast. This is the first time we've done something like this in celebration of National Hospitalist Day. So this is really exciting. I am absolutely delighted. I've been looking forward to this ever since we came up with the idea. And we're going to have a, a really extraordinary conversation with some very, very special panelists. And I think you're all going to really enjoy it. We'll get to that just now. I want to say thank you first to the Society of Hospital Medicine for helping to put this on. Dr. Eric Howell is the CEO of Society of Hospital Medicine. And thank you to him for really being the energy to help make this go. And then Brett Radler and Caitlin Cowan from the Society of Hospital Medicine, they are the rocket fuel behind all of the promotional work, the production work. They are essential tools in all of this. So thank you to both of them. And most of all, thanks to all of you for joining. Uh, everyone's making some time. I know this is a busy time of day, but delighted that you could carve out a little bit to join us. And this is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be doing a panel type discussion that I'll moderate if you've ever listened to Explore the Space. This is the sort of thing I love. We get to ask questions from wonderful, really smart and engaged people in a, in a very dynamic format. So this will be a great time. We do have some time reserved at the end. We're going to go for 60 minutes. We'll be done at five o'clock Pacific, seven o'clock Eastern. But for the last 15 minutes or so, we do want to answer questions from the audience. If you want to put questions into the chat box, they can be general questions. They can be directed at a specific panelist, whatever you like. I will read those out verbatim and we'll get some answers from our panelists. Uh, but, so please feel free to do that. Add your question to the chat box anytime you like, and we will get to as many of those as we can in that last 15 minutes or so. This chat is being recorded. It's going to also be released as an episode of Explore the Space podcast probably next week. So for your friends who are on service or you know your family members who wanted to check it out but can't for whatever reason, it will be released in audio format on the Explore the Space feed. So don't worry about missing out there. Last thing, I know a lot of folks who are watching, including our panelists, we're all active on social media and where a lot of us are on Twitter. If you want to live tweet this, please feel free to do so. We love live tweeting events, things like that. I'll just ask you to use the hashtag NHD2021. That's the hashtag we're going to use, hashtag NHD2021. And uh, let's get rolling. I think the best way to start is to just jump right in and let's go through and, and meet the panelists who are joining us to discuss the pluripotent hospitalist. So our first panelist is Dr. Anika Kumar. Dr. Kumar is a clinical assistant professor of pediatrics at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University and a pediatric hospitalist at the Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital. And she serves as the pediatric editor of The Hospitalist, which is the Society of Hospital Medicine's monthly news magazine. Dr. Kumar, thank you for joining us. For having me. All right. So I'm going to throw you your first question. You're, you, you, you like to immerse yourself in the culinary arts and in the world of cooking. So what are the five ingredients you cannot do without? So the five ingredients that I can't do without, um, I am adopting this from a cooking book I read. So it's called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. So if you haven't read the cooking book, I highly recommend it. It's also a Netflix special, but for salt, I think of seasoning. So for me, that's dried coriander powder um, that's always in my pantry. For fat, I like to bake a lot. So there's always butter around. Acid, for me, that's citrus. Um, I always have some type of lemon juice or actually I have lemons or oranges in my refrigerator. And then heat. I'm South Asian American, so you got to have that chili powder or some sort of chilies around, whether it's dried chilies or fresh chilies. And then 
For my fifth ingredient, it's always curiosity. I think that um, having fun in the kitchen, you got to want to explore. And so that's my fifth ingredient. It comes from here, not from my pantry. I love the fifth ingredient. That's the perfect thing to bring to a round table such as this as well. That's awesome. Our next panelist is Dr. Gurpreet Dhaliwal. Dr. Dhaliwal is a clinician educator and a professor of medicine at the University of California at San Francisco. He studies and writes and speaks about how doctors think. And I think many of us have had the opportunity to see him take the stage at one of our various conferences when we had the opportunity to go to conferences where he would break down a clinical case in a manner that I think most of us just find absolutely mesmerizing. And so in that space, Gurpreet, thank you for being here. And I want to just ask you this question that I've never asked you this before, even though I've had the chance. You do this thing that I think a lot of us feel like is ethereal, but how does routine, how does that sort of syncopated rhythm of life, how do you leverage that to do these things that make us all smile? Well, that's very kind of you, Mark. I, I'm, I'm twice as big a fan as you are of uh, what you just said about me, but I do have routines. I think you know about me and I um Sometimes people ask me, what are your hobbies? My hobby is whatever system I put in place, like whether it's my work or with my family. And even when it comes to medicine, you know, uh, every day I practice, I'm always seeing patients. So that's part of my routine. And every day I try to read just a little. I think one of the things that I have learned is if you have a habit like exercise or reading medicine or teaching, uh, many days we can't do as much as we'd like, uh, but you can always never let it get to zero. And so it might be just like five minutes on the human diagnosis case or a small chalk talk for three learners or a quick check-in with the kids. It may not be as much as I wanted to do at home or at work, but I never let it go to zero. And I, I credit that for sort of the cumulative effect uh, over many, many years of doing that. I love that concept of not letting it get to zero. That, that actually really resonates. And it's going to resonate with our next panelist as well because of the question that I'm going to ask her. Dr. Ndidi Unaka is an associate professor in the Division of Hospital Medicine at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, and she has served as the associate program director for the pediatric residency program there since 2011. Dr. Unaka, welcome. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. My question to you, you played Division I ball in the Pac-12 at one point, and so if we're coming down to zero, if, it, if the clock is winding down to zero and the Ducks are down by one and they need a bucket to win, where do you want the ball? Where are you taking the game-winning shot? Mark, you're taking me back. I feel so old, <laughs> but uh, I'm getting nostalgic. Um, so I played, I was a forward, so I was in the post. And even though in my head I wanted to be a guard, uh, I need the ball in the post on the baseline. I would get it. I would turn around, shoot a uh, fadeaway jumper, and we would just celebrate, have a great time. And it would be against your Bruins. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. That's awesome. <laughs> but we would all still rush the floor and it would be totally cool. That's right. Exactly. Uh, that's great. All right. And since we're already on the floor and we're already jumping around, that's perfect for Dr. Malin Martinez. Dr. Martinez is a clinical researcher and a clinical associate hospitalist scholar at the University of Chicago and a busy clinical hospitalist. Her research focuses on hospital-associated disability, which is obviously relevant in the, during the COVID-19 pandemic. She is, at one point in her life, a professional musician. And so since we're already on the floor and we're jumping around, Dr. Martinez, what band are you fronting when we get to go back and start seeing shows again? And what song are you going to open the show with? Um, I don't know if it has to be a band of living individuals. I would say I would like to be fronting the Beatles alongside uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Um, what was the second half of the question? 
what song are you going to open the show with? Oh, I should have known better is my favorite Beatles song <laughs> or a day in the life. Maybe close with a day in the life open with, I should have known better. <laughs> I love it. That's so great. Well, we could start this round table with, I should have known better when we thought about going into hospital medicine, but I think that we did know better. And that's why we're all here. And I think that it's a, it's a nice place for us to start with this idea of kind of why we're here and this idea of pluripotency. And the reason that I put these questions to each of you is we want to illustrate, right? We talk about this a lot, that we're whole people, that we have these rich skill sets and we get to leverage them outside the hospital. And we also get to leverage very robust skill sets inside the hospital. That's part of the expectation that we carry as hospitalists. So Malin, I'll, I'll, I'll pick it up with you from right there. When you think about the, the idea of bags of skills, of sets of skills, of toolboxes, and of using them in, in, in parallel and using them in series in the hospital, outside the hospital, how does that mindset work for you to think about, here are the skills I have, here's the things I want to sharpen, here are the things that I feel like are strengths. How do you just, first of all, just take that idea on board? I feel like as a hospitalist and a researcher, there's there, those are the first the two big buckets of skills and going to sort of the clinical side of just being a hospitalist. I There's sort of a lane of um, the sort of diagnostic skill and the, the knowledge piece. Then there's the piece of sort of care coordination. And then there's a piece of sort of the the interpersonal skills with with the the team you're working teams you're working with and also with the patient and their family and so I feel like those are sort of the the lanes I'm always trying to sort of work in and sharpen and and find ways to get better at sort of something in each of those every day. Anika, when you hear that discussion of what the lanes look like, is it different in the world of pediatrics? Or when we talk about, because we always, I remember I, I did I did three months of peds when I was in medical school and I've been taking care of adults ever since. And, and the rubric was kids are not little adults. So with that, that's how I think about this. So I want to ask you is, is the mindset, are those lanes, are they the same when you're doing that, this work as a hospitalist, this idea of pluripotency, is it the same inside of, of the pediatric facility? So I think they're similar. So we have our our clinical medicine and using our diagnosis skills. And then we, like you talked about care coordination, depending on, you know, the type of case that's admitted, there may be a lot of care coordination or they may not be. Um, we don't have in pediatrics, the majority of our patients don't necessarily go to post-acute care. Do you know what I mean? Or, um, you know, they're usually discharged home from the hospital. Um, and so that's a little bit of a different lane. I actually was an engineer before I came to before I went to medical school. And so for me, I think of what I do actually is just a lot of problem solving. I mean, that's what you're taught in your um, engineering curriculum is problem solving. So I approach that as how do I um, you know come up with my differential diagnosis and how do I you know diagnose the patient? And so I think that the the lanes are a little bit different, but they do, there is some overlap. And yes, children are not just little adults. I am sure my colleague Didi would agree with me. Oh, I definitely do. I definitely do. And I mean, I think you hit on some really important things. I, you know, when I think about the skill sets, I think about hospitalists in general are just really nimble, right? We're very adaptable. You know, I think we all really value teamwork. 
Um, and we, you know, take on the role of being the coordinator and making sure things are, you know, getting done in a seamless um, and thoughtful manner. And so I think those skills are really important. I also think about communication, right? And communicating with families, communicating with, you know, our research team, communicating with primary care physicians. I think that is something we're very used to doing. And I think we do it well. I think we don't shy away from difficult conversations with consultants. Um, and I think that's what makes being a hospitalist so amazing. Preet, do you feel like there is the the need to teach and encourage the skill of orchestration so that those who are in training who want to be a hospitalist who look at this profession say, the fastest growing profession in medicine, I should probably at least think about it as a career. Are we giving people that sense of aspiration of you'll get to do all these things, clinical medicine, you'll be, you know, complex patient management, all these different things, all that problem solving. But are we also giving them the tools to understand what that orchestration looks like? Because if these things are not working in series, we're not going to be, we're not going to be soaring in the way that we want to. And I think we've probably all been there probably in the last week. Yeah, I agree agree with my co-panelist said that it is a sort of a menu of skills that you keep layering on over your career, right? First, you want to make sure you get the medicine right. You quickly learn that you have to get communication right. You learn that you have to get teamwork uh, right. And then it it winds up being this ever expanding sphere where you're like, I need to keep getting better at the things that I, I thought I had down. And then I I learned there's this new area I need to learn. Like uh, I was good at talking with families. Now I need to get good at talking with consultants. I'm good at talking with consultants. Now I need to get good at talking with uh, the interprofessional team. But then wait a minute, you know, the last conversation I had with the consultant wasn't the best. I actually have to go back to that skill. Um, So there's a lot of that sort of revisiting something I thought I was good at or unlearning a practice I had. Um, To your question about whether we give the trainees experience in it, I think they get experience. Um, But it's such a broad number of skills. I don't know how often we have the time on a given rotation to narrate and teach each one of those sub-skills. And sometimes I regret that the time is a little too short. The flip side is I'm amazed by how good today's trainees are at those things, um, even without my involvement. And that's one of the most inspirational things that I've seen. Oftentimes I'm picking up tips from them, which is fantastic. I'm struck by your word choice there that that you said that you need to learn. And that, to me, is striking. And so, Malin, when you think about needing to learn, what does that sound like for you? Because you have done the clinical research. You've done the clinical work. You, you, you do, a, you're pluripotent, right? As, as we all are. There is that need in that space, right? You've been a professional musician. There's a need there. How do we sort of internalize that as a skill and own it? and feel good about it, and then help others to understand that it's there for them too, that that need to want to get better is vital and relevant. I mean, as far as sort of trying to instill that in people who might want to, you know, go into this in the future, I think that's a, that's something to, to emphasize with people when we talk about hospital medicine, because that's a, that's a, it's, it's a good thing to, to want. It's a good thing to feel like you need to keep improving and you, you need to keep learning. And, uh, I think that that that's, that's how I, that's how I stumbled upon being, you know, very interested in guidelines and clinical guidelines is that I feel that need to always be learning and always be better and always know the, the latest, most evidence-based way to, to practice what I'm doing. And so, um, 
I think that that the the need is something we should be sort of advertising in our profession because that's a that's a good way to be going going through life is always wanting to improve yourself. I remember starting as a hospitalist and being told that hospitalists are jack of all trades, masters of none. And I would strongly disagree with that statement because I think just as Gurpreet talked about and just as Malin have talked about, like we are, and, and, and Didi talked about, like my co-panelists here have talked about, we're masters of communicating and we're masters of organizing and we're masters of diagnosis. And yes, as Gurpreet was saying, like sometimes we have to go backwards a little bit, but that's because we're just becoming, we're we're sharpening our tools and becoming even better masters. And so I would, for, you know, people who are interested in going into hospital medicine, if you love everything, all the systems, all the organs, um, if you like taking care of patients and you like being in the hospital, then this is really a a great field for you. Um, You just have to decide if you want to take care of adults or kids. Right. Right. Indeed. When we think about what we need to, progress in our careers and to sustain our careers. I'm, I'm 15 years in as a hospitalist and I've actually been thinking about this a lot because I would say at this point now, I feel like I'm still in my prime, but in terms of American hospitalists, I'm probably further on the kind of like duration of career spectrum than most. What are the things that we need to be doing and that, that you think about when you think this is where I see my career progressing? These are the things that I aspire to. So here are the things I know that I will need to do to, to make sure that that momentum continues? Where does that land for you? Yeah, you know, I think we do a lot of really wonderful things. I think we are at, you know, the forefront of medical education in a lot of ways. We interact with students, residents, fellows. You know, I think we do a lot of operations and quality improvement work. You know, I think in terms of where we need to go, I think even though we are, Um, clinicians that focus on patients who are in the hospital, I think it is important that we think beyond the walls of the hospital and really continue to push towards how do we provide comprehensive care and think about what families and what patients are going to encounter outside of our walls. I think that is critical if we're really trying to think about how do we provide quality care. It can't just be in the moment when they are admitted on our teams. I think part of it is a kind of doing something that's counterintuitive. How do we keep our patients from needing our care, right? Um, and I, I think that is really cool. And I think, you know, a lot of us are working in that space. And then I would say, really continue to um, advance our field from a research perspective. I think a lot of people are doing really amazing things. And I think we are so diverse Um, and what we manage clinically, um, and what we're super excited about. And I think being able to disseminate that information across the board, I think, is the next step in our our journey as a field. I'm sitting with this idea of comprehensive care because it gets to another topic that I think is really critical that on National Hospitals Day, we pay some attention to. So, Gurpreet, I want to ask you, we, we, we think about comprehensive care for our patients. How do we think about comprehensive care for ourselves? How do we take on board the idea of comprehensively caring for ourselves so that we can do this for as long as we want to and enjoy it and know that it's going to have its ups and its downs and it's going to have some days where we soar and some days that are hard <laughs> that, that will stay with us for a long, long time. And I can say that 
know, I'm 15 years in and there are days from a decade ago that I remember every single day I'm, I'm in the hospital. Comprehensive care for the individual, though, the individual hospitalist and then the team of hospitalists is critically important. And are we paying enough attention to it? Yeah, I think, you know, wellness is obviously on the forefront of everyone's mind. And for good reason, it was pre-COVID. It's been amplified now in the time of COVID. Um, you know, there's so many takes on uh, what, what goes into wellness. And sometimes we focus on sort of time outside the hospital, you know, the, the time you're at work versus not. I think a lot more about like what makes it great to be at in the hospital or be at work. And some of those things are really well known by research. Um, you know, Daniel Pink has his book, um, Drive, where he says, what makes people love their work? And it's not salaries. Everyone gets a big bump when they get a raise and then they go back to their baseline state. Uh, but what people really enjoy is autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And he gets to that point and you start to think about, you know, how can we set up our work environment that has some of those elements? You know, autonomy shrinking a little bit in healthcare. Um, but, you know, if we connect to our purpose, like what are we doing here and how do we connect? It's either learning about patients and their stories, being with a team of people that you work with that really builds that purpose. Um, and then the other point about mastery, which builds on our previous conversation, it's tremendous joy if you're in an environment where people value your mastery, whether it is working in a team or communicating or diagnosing or doing a procedure. And so if you think of setting up the work environment, if those things are in place, I think a lot of wellness can actually happen at work, um, even though another component, of course, is balancing with our lives outside of it. Malin, what do you think about finding that sense of wellness and well-being at work, mastery, uh, purpose, and autonomy? Is, is that a workable proposition? As we sit here today, early 2021, it sounds aspirational. I love it. Is it a workable proposition on the day-to-day? I think it is workable. But I also think it's really, really personal. Because mm-hmm. enjoying my work for me, I, that means, I mean, I'm a, I'm a 25 clinical, 75% researcher, and I'm happy that way. And I, I enjoy doing my research, doing my own statistics, and, you know, I'm writing grants and uh, just learning about this problem that I'm interested in, that I've developed an interest in. So I, I, I just think that's, that's an important piece for people to kind of focus on it as far as self-care for the hospitalist is that there's no, there's no one size fits all. That's for sure. Anika, what do you think about seeing your patients as fuel for that sense of wellness and well-being? Is it restorative? Is it sometimes a challenge? Is it a bit of both? For me, I, I love my clinical time. Like it's one of my favorite things that I do. And so being on service for a week, really, yes, by Friday or Thursday, I'm tired because I've been working hard, but I feel like I am not only giving back to my patients and uh, my team, but I'm also giving back to myself and, and reminding myself why it is I do what I do every day. And then it, you know, it keeps me in a state um, so that when I, you know, maybe go off service and I'm doing um, some non-clinical work, it gives me that fuel and that reminder that, you know, it is coming up. It's something for me to look forward to. So I think in that regards, everyone is different, but I think most of us do clinical work because it brings us joy and that joy brings us wellness in our practice. Yeah, I was going to build off what Anika just um, mentioned. You know, I, I agree. I think when I when I reflect on what drew me to medicine, it was definitely the opportunity to build strong relationships with patients and families. 
And I think it's okay for us to acknowledge that sometimes those encounters are really heavy and we take it home. I think, you know, what we do and see every day isn't always normal. Um, and, you know, I think it, it can be really stressful when you're trying to honor the goals um, and expectations of families and you are, you feel like you're missing the mark with them or when you can't do more for them because of all of the other contextual factors that influence their overall health and well-being. But I think the the fact that we're in it with them um, is something that gives a lot of us purpose. And um, I think that, you know, when I reflect on all of those things, you know, I'm so happy that I'm in the role that I am. Gurpreet, you work with lots of students, lots of residents, lots of fellows in a big city. Do you feel like those who see the world of hospital medicine, since it is so ubiquitous, do they sense, feel, and understand what Ndidi was just describing? Or do we are we this sort of amorphous specialty of people who come into a shift and disappear again? What do you think the understanding from those looking in towards hospital medicine is of what Ndidi was just describing? Well, Ndidi was making the point a little bit about, I think, was sort of, you know, when we interact, we carry it with us, right? And um, if I, and, and to some degree, indeed, I think you were even saying there's some things we can't control, and that's also what we carry with us, whether it's the society that the uh, patients are living in or the health system they're trying to navigate. As a hospitalist, sometimes we cannot fix those factors, but we sort of share the journey with our patients for a short period of time, and that weighs on us. And if I was to reflect on it, I think the trainees really pick up on that. And again, I just want to credit, I think the modern generation of trainees recognizes those factors uh, to a greater degree than we did uh, some time ago. And I think they also feel it, but I think they also understand how our, our learning, at least, how to talk to their patients about those factors rather than ignoring them. Um, and then also discussing as a team, like it has become as important as discussing what we're going to do with their insulin or if we're going to change the heparin sliding scale today to figure out, can we write up, can we figure fix this one small part of their world that might help them navigate the health system or or navigate the world they live in. And they view that equally as important. And so even though we carry that with them, we also carry these moments of uplift where we're like, we're trying to address those small things. Malin, how much do you bring your outside self into those dynamics with the patients and families you're helping to take care of, your teammates and you know the residents and the medical students that may be with you on rounds or in conference? We know that we're all whole people. And we also know that in the world of hospital medicine, I would say probably medicine in general, each of us is on a separate journey of how much we allow that whole self into the hospital. How much do you use or hold back the whole Dr. Malin Martinez when you're inside the hospital as a busy hospitalist? Um, I think the part of me that uh, I, I really bring with me to work and that I really sort of let show to the residents and to the patients is a part that's really important and really works for me in this situation and works for the patients. And that's just my sort of love of, of people and love of these patients and love of sort of taking care of them. I, I, in medical school, that was sort of my strength. I remember that was my, like the patient communication thing was sort of my strength. It's still what I love. And I get this, like right now I'm on service and my patients are age 19 to 91. So I just, and I work on the South side of Chicago. And so there's all these different kinds of people, different ages of people, just this whole wide range of people. And I like bringing my 
ability to com- sort of see eye to eye with someone and, and bring that that communication piece to to my encounters with the patients and to sort of an educational opportunity with the residents. I like that idea a lot. And it makes me kind of reflect on in the space of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're all having to leverage skills probably in ways that we maybe didn't expect or more than we thought we would have or something like that. I want to ask the same question to each one of you. And I think this is something that's obviously going to resonate with those who are listening as well. And I'll, I'll start with you, Anika. What is a skill that you either have or had to develop in order to move through the, this first year of the COVID-19 pandemic that you did not expect would be as important? The skill that you had or needed to develop in the pandemic that you either didn't have or didn't realize was important. And then you can, we'll just pass the baton because I want to hear from each of you on this. I think that this is one of those things that is really illustrative of the, the power and the importance of pluripotency in our specialty as hospitalists. I think for me, it was communication. So I am a pediatric hospitalist. So for me, COVID-19 and the pandemic was a little bit different. We, at my institution, we were taking care of slightly older patients up until the age of, I think, 25. And now we're actually taking care of a lot of Miss C patients or the multi-inflammatory syndrome in children. But during the height of the pandemic, say like nine to 12 months ago, a lot of it was communication. I worked heavily with the popcorn network uh, on their communications and social media teams to share information with to people just like myself who hadn't taken care of adults in several years. Um, similarly, a lot of it was communicating with my community. So I was asked by some the Cleveland Public School District to give some advice on kind of the uh, on kind of schooling and things like that. Obviously, I didn't do it alone. It was a team of physicians. But, you know, so I think a lot of it was communication and and how to change that, how, how to leverage my communication skills in talking with my colleagues and then also in talking with the community that I um, care and serve for every day. It'll be interesting to see what was done a little bit further south in Ohio in the pediatrics world. Um, so, Ndidi, what did you guys do down, down south in Ohio? Yeah, I mean, I echo everything that you said. I think communication was critical, I think, particularly because at the beginning of this pandemic, it was just so unsettling. And, um, you know, there were so many things that we were just so uncertain to, uncertain about. And I also would say, you know, I learned um, really from seeing some of our senior leaders here do it so well, the importance of being visible, particularly at a time when people were not together and more isolated. And I think being able to be visible when you can to deliver really complicated or tough news or you know, communicate about uncertainty, being here for, you know, our residents who, you know, a lot of them, you know, our interns moved here sight unseen, right? And so I think they needed to feel like, you know, they had some sense of normalcy and a sense of community. And I, I, I really learned how important it was to be visible and available and how important the little things mattered. Yeah, you know, I think 
just, you know, an email to check on someone or, you know, touching base with our patients and asking them, hey, how are you doing in the midst of COVID for the, even our pediatric patients, even though we weren't seeing as many kids be admitted. I think those things really mattered. Um, so those are just some reflections that I have. Malin, how about for you? The same, we'll, we'll, we'll move to you and then Gurpreet. And then actually, I want to take a swing at this one too. I think the thing I definitely had to had to work on was we always kind of have a hard time leaving work at work and trying, you know, getting a good night's sleep because, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to this patient tonight? But um, I had that, I still have it really, really badly with the COVID patients. Um, I think part of it is that I mean, now we're allowing one guest in the hospital, but you know, they were isolated the whole time. And I just could not let go of worrying about these patients and having terrible insomnia, you know, trying to leave work at work and not, and even after they were discharged, I mean, I always try to, you know, call my patients the next day and see how they're doing, but they get everything set up, are they comfortable at home? But I mean, I was probably annoying my patients after they were discharged. I would be calling them one day out, two days out, three days out, are you still okay? But it it was just trying to trying to not be so anxious about these patients. Also, sort of the mystery around COVID at first, it was like, how are they going to do? Like, we really didn't know how they were going to do. It's it's a little more predictable now, but it was really scary at first. Malin, I'll just say, I doubt your parent, patients were annoyed. I bet they cherished your calls. <laughs> That's the mark of a really great doctor who sort of can't get the patient out of their mind. <laughs> I think, Mark, you're asking what skill, and I, it's almost countless ones, I think, uh, and Didi and Nika already said the two communication. Um, one thing I, I was thinking about was, you know, like our job as hospitalists and physician generals, like this is a tremendous privilege. You sort of get to see a cross section of humanity, people of all walks of life. And so you you feel like you know people, right? Like, or I know, I know the broad cross section of society. Um, one aspect of, uh, I think, people I didn't fully appreciate is how widely variable people's risk tolerance is. Um, and, and it's not just patients. I think even among my colleagues, you know, whether it was, and I just have now this appreciation of it, because when I read this tweet, which just completely shared me or told me what was happening, they're like, normally no one sees science unfold. Science unfolds in these journals for five, 10 years, and then there's like, da-da, there's a discovery, right? But instead, everyone's in on science. Everyone's got an opinion on it. And of course, it's open to everyone's interpretation. And so um, instead of me saying like, oh, the article says this, so we shouldn't, I don't need this mask, therefore you don't need this mask, or I believe in the eye goggles, but you don't, or this patient wants to come to the hospital, but this one doesn't. When you start to learn, it was like risk was deeply personal to people, either based on their previous experiences, their personal calculations, or home circumstances. And although I didn't, I don't want to frame myself as being judgmental before, I'm, I hope I'm even less judgmental about it now, because what I learned was everyone has their own reasons and backgrounds that they come to those decisions. Um, and if so, yeah. someone needed something to be safe or feel safe, like that was the right answer uh, for them rather than, you know, some right way to do it, particularly early. In- I, I totally agree with you that that idea of risk tolerance. And I think for me, you know, as a, as a full-time clinical hospitalist, the, the, the skill that I had to really reach down for and, and sharpen and, and maintain was I had to find my courage. I remember just the first time I took care of COVID patients, I was scared. Um, I have no problem saying that out loud. That was a scary experience. I remember, though, the nurses who were on the unit, they'd already been doing it. And they were the same, same affect, same jokes, same everything. And that actually really helped. And I've leaned on that every time I've been back on our COVID service. They're just rolling along, you know, doing the job, monitoring everything smoothly. and, and, And that support was essential. But making sure that that courage was there to not only do the work, but then also to be forward facing, right? To be visible. 
so that people could see like, Hey, we can do this. We can do it together. It's, it's okay to be scared, but we still have to move forward. And then I think also just acknowledging what I learned from so many of you too, is, is understanding what COVID is showing us about our country and illustrating some things about our profession as well, that we had to come to grips with around structural inequities and around the impact that it's having on communities in ways that we may have seen before, but didn't fully understand, right? Seeing science evolve, we're seeing it evolve. Like we're all becoming sociologists now and there's a responsibility there too. And I think we've all had to just kind of dig into the toolbox and make sure that our, our courage is in place so that we can continue to do the work because it's part of the, part of what's aspirational and also can feel daunting is we're just starting, right? We're, we're a year into the pandemic, but this has been the biggest rock flipping exercise of, of our lives. We're, we're seeing things laid bare in ways that we haven't seen or thought of or internalized. And I think that that journey is different for everyone too. So I, I just, I think it's in that space, it's, it's been a threat multiplier, but it's also been an, an opportunity aggregator and, and we have to make the best of it to make the best of it. We have to be healthy. And I think it is important to acknowledge that as hospitalists who have been out on the, on the bleeding edge for a year, mental health is critically important. And we know that we kind of face shortages in that space for the public at large and also for our profession. So Anika, for you, when you think about mental health and sustaining yourself and using the skills that you've heard about and the skills that you know you have, how do we uplift just the concept of maintaining mental health as its own thing, free of stigma in that place that we want to get to? How do we do that work knowing that it is mission critical? So I'm the daughter of a child and adolescent psychiatrist. So mental health is something that, um, and making sure that my own mental health as well is something that was instilled in me at a very young age. And for me personally, that mental health comes from making sure that I have connections with people and that I am checking in on people, but it also makes, it's also important for me to do things one of the things that I had a standard practice of doing at, before the pandemic started was exercising every day. And that went away for like six months. And I, I got into a rut and I wasn't myself. And I just was. And then I found Peloton, um, which I know some of you also on this call have found Peloton or on this, uh, <laughs> on this round table have found Peloton. But, but really, I, I found that Mental health for me was a couple of things. One was my own way of improving my mental health, which for me was exercise and meditation and yoga. But two, it was also my mental health was better knowing that the people closest to me, whether they be colleagues or friends or family, their mental health was also in a good place and they were also in a good place. And that helped to build me up. And I think, you know, one of the things that my uh, division has actually started doing is our division is doing a QI project on physician wellness. And, and we are, every meeting we have, we're starting off with a wellness activity. And I think that helps put us all in a place of, okay, this is a, this is a safe space and B your mental health and your wellness is important to all of us. And I think it's important that, that, you know, our leadership has done a very good job of stressing that, especially since they've instituted this QI project. But I think that um, really, I think that everyone does something a little differently. But I think that when it comes from leadership, it actually um, not only resonates with individual providers, but with everyone within that um, department or community. Ndidi, as someone who is in a 
role where you are looking out for residents and supervising residents. And I can't remember when match day is. I, I don't think it's happened yet, but I think we're coming up on it. So you're getting ready to bring in an, a new group of residents. The awareness of mental health, how how far on the front burner is it? Is it where you'd like it to be? Or is it getting the attention, scrutiny and resources that it needs for us, acknowledging that we're where we are now and it's going to take a while to, to continue to move forward? Yeah, I think it's definitely getting the attention. Uh, I think resources are a huge issue. And, you know, I think the stigma around mental health among physicians is real. And I think you couple that with lack of resources or limited resources, even with physicians who are insured, um, it's a real problem. And then, you know, I think our trainees, you know, I, it has been a really difficult year for many of them. Many of them matched at programs um, that in cities that they had never been to before. And they've, you know, they come to work and they are able to build relationships, but not in the way that we all built relationships when we were residents. And I think that social isolation has had a huge impact um, on them. And, you know, I, I think I definitely um, recognize how important this is. I think it's an, it's a point that we as a profession need to advocate on behalf of each other and on behalf of our trainees. And honestly, I think we just need to view mental health as just health you know, and stop separating it out in order for us to move to a place where people feel like they can access what they need without feeling shame about it. I think that that is so well put. And I want to take that sense of helping people find their community and and understand that they're not alone, even though we do all feel isolated. And let's bring some questions in from our group. And I hope that doesn't sound like a clumsy segue, but actually to me, that sounds like the perfect segue because the things that felt aspirational for us having this conversation is having that sense of community that we get to be together, even though we're apart, we get to be in the same virtual space and in the same virtual mindset. And for me, that has been incredibly sustaining through, through this past year, through the insomnia, which hopefully one day will get better through all of those challenges. That sense of finding community where we can has been critical for me. And so I want to pull a couple of questions and I'm going to, I'm going to send them out. I'll pick one of you to send the question to, but everyone can jump in. And this first one, I'm going to, I'm going to definitely jump in on it. It's from Tyler Anstett. And he asks, do we think hospital medicine at 100% clinical is possible for an entire career as it is for other specialties? Malin, you're 2575 split. Take it. I mean, again, I, I think it's a very personal thing, but it, that would not be sustainable for me. De- definitely not. Um, it's just, I, I need that I need to sort of go between getting that sort of what the, the, the nourishment that I get from the, the doctor patient relationship and then sort of turn and, and have time where I'm doing my research. And then each one sort of makes me crave the other when I'm, when I'm doing that. So for me, it wouldn't be, I, I know that there are people for whom it would be though. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people yeah. for whom it is. I've been, I've been full-time as a clinical hospitalist since 2006. Um, I've taken on other responsibilities along with it when I've done, you know, my, in my leadership work, but that's been in addition to, I don't think I've ever gone below like 10 shifts in a month. If I have, it's because like I was on vacation or something like that. And I love that. But I think the critical piece of this is it speaks to what you've said a couple of times that 
it is a very personal choice. And however you choose to build it is all good. It's thumbs up because that's what's going to sustain you. We're looking for that 100% of what sustains you, brings you joy, brings you mastery, autonomy, and purpose for as many years as you want it. That's the that's the solution for you. Uh, and I would suggest that that exercise that we all go through in college and in medical school of working to better understand how to not compare ourselves to others, this, this is a perfect example because you're fulfilled, I'm fulfilled, you know, it comes and goes in varying degrees, but we know that it can, it can resonate differently and, and it's okay for, for whoever seeks it. I've got another question, Gurpreet, this one's coming to you. This is from Daniel Mata Calderon. I'm an incoming intern interested in becoming a hospitalist. Just as pluripotent cells differentiate into cell lineages, do you think it is important for a pluripotent hospitalist to also differentiate? When is it also important to differentiate? And how to cultivate a specific interest in hospital medicine without walking away from the whole slash holistic approach of the specialty? It's a monster question. As a monster question, yeah. I think, you know, one of the great things, I'm a generalist and, and so I'm, I'm beholden to this, but I think there's no rush to specialize. I'm, I'm not even conceptualizing exactly what it is because there are branches of hospital medicine you can do within the clinical realm. And then, of course, we've talked about some non-clinical roles. But I feel like almost always early in your career, uh, differentiating too early without sampling everything is a, is a mistake for two reasons. One is even if one goes on to specialize, but um, just you know, in a certain subset of patients or a certain type of uh, diseases in hospital medicine, like I'm be a cardiology, cardiac hospitalist or oncologic hospitalist or a certain subset, you always need to know that firm foundation of like what all the other disease manifestations are to do that more specialized role in the clinical way is. So I don't think it, it would serve someone well to specialize early on. And the second is you, you may fall in love with that. I mean, I think a lot of people, one of the joys when people say, I'm going to try out hospital medicine for a while with some future plan is that they actually fall in love with the specialty and they realize that all of the generalism, and I don't just mean the medical generalism, I mean the skill generalism is pretty captivating and sometimes intoxicating. So my advice would be that you know, specialization is open always, uh, but being a generalist is actually a privilege that sometimes that becomes harder to recast. So I'd enjoy that and maybe even it might wind up being the most valuable thing you do. Anika, do you think we need to rebrand the idea of being a generalist? Because for me, I feel like it's sort of, lost its luster in a way. And I think that that concept as Gurpreet was laying it out, lays out how special it is. Do you think that there's an opportunity for us to, I don't know if rebrand's the right word, but to shine a light on the capacity, the pluripotency of the generalist? So it's interesting that you ask a pediatric hospitalist that since that pediatric hospital medicine is now a subspecialty of pediatrics. So it's so our fellowships, uh, the majority of them are ACGME accredited now, and it's considered a subspecialty. I got grandfathered in, as I'm sure Dr. Um, and Didi also got grandfathered in. So we trained at a time when you didn't need to do fellowship in order to sit for the pediatric hospital medicine boards. And I think what you're bringing up here is actually a struggle or a growing pain that we're actually seeing within pediatric hospital medicine um, in that are we generalists or are we subspecialists? Because a lot of pediatrics is actually not practiced in the hospital. And a lot of pediatric hospitalists care for children with medical complexity, which isn't necessarily something 
that general pediatricians care, uh, which isn't necessarily a patient population that general pediatrics, um, general pediatricians get a lot of training in caring for. And so it's very interesting. I don't think I consider myself a subspecialist yet. I still consider myself a generalist. I'm still board certified in general pediatrics, but but I think that this is actually what you bring up is a growing pain that we're seeing within the field of pediatric hospital medicine. And I would love to hear Ndidi's take on kind of the same question. I want to hear Ndidi's take too. And Ndidi, I have another question for you. And you can fuse them together because it actually picks up something that Anika said around issues that, that you can take care of in the hospital, but they're not necessarily germane to the reason for hospitalization. And it's a question from Vishnu Nagalapuram. How do you balance between primary care duties and cost effectiveness in hospital medicine? Like if a patient needs an MRI of the lumbar spine, which can best be done outpatient in a cost-effective manner, but we still know that the patient needs it, although not urgent. All of us deal with this every single day. Indeed, solve it for us, please. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. But I mean, I think Anika brings up a good point. I do think this is something that within pediatrics, we are really trying to figure out what our identity is. And, you know, I think I'm proud to be board certified in hospital medicine. I'm proud that we um, are, uh, you know, designated subspecialty, but I'm also proud of my identity as a generalist because we take care of everything, right? And I don't think we have to give any of it up. Maybe that's selfish of me, but I think that that's what makes hospital medicine so cool. Um, We just have such diversity in what we do in our job description. I think the question around cost effectiveness um, is a really good one. And, you know, I think, you know, we talk about high value care a lot um, as hospitalists. Um, And, you know, yeah, I think there are times where, you know, we do things in the inpatient setting because it's convenient. And, you know, I think there are times when we should push ourselves to think about, do we really need this right now? Is this something we can do in the outpatient setting? But I think the thing we never want to lose is really the patient and family experience, right? And taking into consideration, what are the barriers that might keep this family from coming back to get and getting this really important study? So I think all of those things have to inform our decisions. I don't think we always do it right. Um, And we talked about this need to learn as hospitalists. I think what's really great about us is that we're also very willing to unlearn practices and de-escalate. And I think that is, you know, something that we do really well and we push for those things. And I I don't think this is any different. I like that you invoke that need to improve again, because for me, I, I have sort of a checklist that I'll work through mentally. And I think it's, I'm so used to it now that I do it unconsciously of, that need, the access, things like that. But in my community, we've had multiple wildfires over the past several years, and we've had many thousands of community members who have lost their homes or have had unstable housing. And then you put a pandemic on top of it. I like being a generalist. And part of being a generalist is doing a little bit of outpatient medicine from time to time. And sometimes those things come up where when we lay the puzzle pieces together, what's the right thing to do for the patient? We're going to do, we're, we're doing the MRI. You're, you're here. I'm not discharging you yet. I'm doing it. And if, you know, if I get a phone call about it, I'll, I'll handle the phone call. I'm an adult and I'm a professional, but uh, th- those are the justifications that I will use. And right. We, I think each of us, or maybe I'm just reflecting on you, the, the insomnia that helps the insomnia a little bit, yeah. just sort of knowing that we've worked through those steps in a rational and consistent manner, but that we're trying to keep a, a patient and a community at the center. 
Malin, you mentioned that you have a community of patients, 19 to 91 on service, and you're going to be rounding on them tomorrow. How do you think about that? Because they're going to ask you those questions on rounds tomorrow too. Oh, I, I'm pretty much on the, the same page as you, Mark. And I was actually just thinking of a patient that was just admitted and um, he, he it was just a patient presenting with fatigue, but he, he had a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis that was going to be ordered soon anyway. And I thought, well, this might show us something. He's not going to have to go as an outpatient and do this. So I, I agree with Ndidi about the preserving the, the patient experience in, in that sort of situation. I'm not just going like willy nilly every day, just like ordering everything to work up something, but but in that sort of situation, if there's a way it's going to help the patient sort of socially, um, you know, from a, from a psychosocial sort of perspective, and it's going to help us in some way medically, then yeah, I'm just going to gonna do it. Gurpreet, I want to hear your take. But the outpatient test I wish we could do in the hospital, sleep studies. I would love to be able to do a sleep study. Man, holy smokes. Gurpreet, you're in San Francisco. Same thing, a diverse patient population, a diverse community of, of learners faculty, you're a professor, residents, fellows, how do you help them understand what their approach will look like when faced with these questions of patients saying, hey, can I get this thing done here? You know, I, I have pneumonia, but there's other things going on. Can we t-? How do you help them develop those routines to address it and do it in a consistent and fulfilling manner? I think what Ndidi said, and then I think Malin's example too, is like, if if it can help the patient, you have to have some governing principle, right? So it can be economics or it can be time. Um, and if you can say it will it help the patient, it's worth doing. I will say one of the things that's hard sometimes is I use that word, like putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And if you have experience also being an outpatient provider or working in other places, you also have the sense that, you know, I, I'm as guilty as any of this. Sometimes the hospitals are like, they can follow up as an outpatient. But if you've ever worked in clinic, it is exceptionally hard to get things done. And now it's doubly so in COVID. I mean, if someone wants, you know, just an MRI, they might get another nasal swab and a huge line in the hospital. So my point is sort of part of teaching them is they may know that what the right thing to do is and by one dimension, money or insurance or convenience. But it's sort of this mental model of how it's really going to play out and how much we can help them if we can just get one more thing done and not only help them, it oftentimes helps the, the primary care provider who's a colleague of ours or the specialist who's clinic visit will be so much more useful because we got that one test. So I sometimes try to narrate out my prediction, which is not written in any evidence, but just sort of drawn with experience with patients. And then the, the system I know, the health system I know is the San Francisco VA. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a couple of minutes. just left. add one Please. thing to what, what has been shared is that we, you know, we have to look at the patient holistically. We're not gastroenterologists who just look at the GI tract. We're not, you know, cardiologists who look at, at the heart and the vasculature, you know, we're just, we are hospitalists. We care for hospitalized patients. That doesn't, we care for the whole hospitalized patient. And so, and sometimes caring for the whole hospitalized patient means taking into consideration what was planned before their hospitalization or what will be planned after their hospitalization. No, it's true. And, you know, we have a couple minutes left and we have one more question. that's sort of an amalgamation of a couple of people asking the same thing. So in one sentence, because we got to get to each of us and then we're going to get everyone, get everyone on with the rest of their evening in one sentence. And Didi, you're first. What is the future of hospital medicine? I think the future is limitless. Uh, I think, you know, we I think because of who we are and what we bring to the table, I think we're going to take over the world. Malin, 
the future of hospital medicine? I think the future of hospital medicine is probably some combination of implementation, de-implementation, and some sort of machine learning sort of thing coming together to, to help us and the patients. Gurpreet, the future of hospital medicine. I think the future of hospital medicine is going to be what it always has been. When, when there's something new and better, we're the first to do it. So when it was quality and safety, it was us. When it was high-value care, it was us. When it was rushing to the front lines of COVID, it's us. Uh, hopefully, it's something equally important. But the future is going to be whatever is new and better. And we're the first to try it out. Anika, the future of hospital medicine. I think the future of hospital medicine is all of the things that my co-panelists have said, but with them comes collaboration. So it's collaboration with our outpatient colleagues to make sure that we have seamless transitions of care. It's collaboration with our inpatient colleagues from other specialties to make sure that our patients get holistic care. I love it. I will say that the future of hospital medicine is all of you. It's the pluripotent hospitalist. And that excites me and that makes me optimistic, but that is the future. And I don't do platitudes. That's the truth. It's you all because that pluripotency and that skill set, it's, it's, it's going to serve our nation. Well, this has been extraordinary. Uh, it's been an amazing way to memorialize national hospitalist day. Thank you to all of our panelists, Dr. Anika Kumar, Dr. Ndidi Unaka, Dr. Malin Martinez, Dr. Gapreet Dollywall. Thank you again to the Society of Hospital Medicine for helping to put this on. Please check out the Society of Hospital Medicine, www.hospitalmedicine.org. Thank you also to the Journal of Hospital Medicine. And we have to shout out our friend, Dr. Samir Shah, who's the editor-in-chief of JHM. And you can follow them on Twitter, but also check out their hashtag JHM chats, which are a blast. I know everyone on this panel has participated. Those are fantastic. This will go up next week as an episode of Explore the Space podcast. And please check out Explore the Space, www.explorethespaceshow.com. A total treat. Thanks to all of you for logging on. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for participating. Thanks so much to our panelists. This was absolutely splendid. Everyone, we are on time. So happy National Hospitalist Bay and good night. My thanks once again to Dr. Ndidi Unaka, Dr. Malin Martinez, Dr. Gapreet Dhaliwal, and Dr. Anita Kumar for joining me on this first ever Explore the Space podcast, Society of Hospital Medicine collaboration to mark National Hospitalist Day. I hope you really enjoyed listening. This was a really special opportunity, and it was just a treat to be a part of it. Thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Learn more about Creighton's executive MBA and executive fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. Thank you also to Care Align for sponsoring this episode. Check out CareAlign for everything you need to manage patient care at your fingertips. Go to www.carealign.ai backslash explore to learn more. And thanks most of all to all of you for listening. Really appreciate it. Hopefully there's some hospitalists out there who haven't checked out Explore the Space before. Hope this helps you feel like you're just part of that larger community. And that's really what we were striving for with this roundtable and the topic of the pluripotent hospitalist. Please do check out the archive of Explore the Space podcast www.explorethespaceshow.com and email me anytime mark at explorethespaceshow.com we will be back with more content soon until then take care of yourselves wear your masks maintain physical distancing wash your hands and we will see you soon bye-bye thank you for listening to explore the space visit us on our website explorethespaceshow.com and please subscribe to our podcast on itunes Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show 
And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com. 